of all people. I was so irritated when she got up and left the room. I knew why. She thought that this white woman was appropriating someone else's story. So she got up from the front row and walked out. She cut through the stage light and left. The woman on stage was telling a story about how as an undergrad student, she'd gone to do field work with her anthropology professor. She'd gone to meet and study with some Navajo shamans. And I have to say, she did all the storytelling things right. She stayed in scene, she stuck to what happened, she poked fun of her white roommate on the trip who found everything the shaman said so profound. She questioned her own expectations as a single but not religious new agey person. She wondered about the wisdom of shamans who also made homophobic jokes over pancakes at IHOP. I knew where the story was going. I've been working with this storyteller for a few weeks, so when I saw my friend, a loudmouth activist pastor, get up and leave, I was so irritated because I thought she wasn't giving the story a chance. And I was disappointed because I knew that she would have loved the ending. Sticking the end of a story is hard. Like too often what happens for any storyteller, including me, beyond just not knowing how to end, is that the teller will have like a great final line that is actually the end to a different story. Zing, and you're like, okay, but what does that have to do with what you just said? Like, it sounds like the end of a story. It feels like the end of a story, but not the end of this story. Key example, Jesus in this parable that Vince read. It's towards the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus at this point in the book is all cranked up on parables about the kingdom of heaven. He's really just telling one right after the other. When he gets to this one about the 10 young women waiting for a party to start. Five were foolish, five were wise, uh, five didn't take enough oil for the long wait, uh, and five of them carried flasks of additional oil, enough to last through the night. They all waited long enough that they all drowsed off and the oil in the lamps burned low. And then once the party finally kicked off, the wise young women topped off their lamps and the other young women suddenly were like, oh, I see how this is gonna go. And as their flames sputtered, they asked for some of the reserve, but the wise young women, they're kind of consistent in their wisdom, said there, there wasn't enough to share actually. They had brought what they needed, not enough to share with those who were unprepared. So the unprepared headed out into the night to try to find an oil dealer who was open at like midnight, only to find that the banquet door was locked when they returned. They banged on it and called to the host to open up, but the host replied, truly, I don't know you. And then Jesus said, do you remember what he said? Before I remind you, I'll say that the end of this parable should have been a no-brainer. Like anybody can see where it's going. It was in the bag. The women without oil miss out on the good stuff because they were unprepared. So one great simple ending would have been, therefore, be prepared. Or even more flat-footed, therefore, keep extra oil on hand. But instead, Jesus says, therefore, keep awake. What? Like, what story even is this? While they were waiting, everyone fell asleep. Like, he just said it. It's not about staying awake. The sang we just, song we just sang, that finishes it right. Keep your lamplight trimmed and burning. If you're going to take a moral away from the story, that's it. Be prepared or something. 
there's a structural problem with the story. And there are some other problems as well. Um, the shape of the night, the shape of the wedding, doesn't quite make sense even squinting back at it through time and the culture where it comes from. Another thing that's wrong with it is that the translation of the word bridesmaids is problematic. And so is another common translation. These 10 young women were virgins, probably just young women, too young to have been married. Third problem, Jesus calls five of the women who run out of oil, not foolish, but morons. Jesus calls these potentially very young women morons. So Jesus calling like 13 year olds morons. Okay, four, there's this weird suggestion, like I said, that they go out and find somewhere to buy oil after midnight, but who cares? Like, honestly, I named it, but who cares about all that? The big problem in this story is that, for me anyway, the problem is that it's yet another place where the point is division and separation. This is one of, frankly, many places, especially in the book of Matthew, but honestly all over the place, where Jesus' point is who is in and who's out. In this case, it's who's in and who's out of the wedding feast. And lots of stories, especially in Matthew, end with people locked out of wedding banquets, thrown out of homes for added flourish. Sometimes they are thrown into outer darkness. You wanna guess my least favorite gospel? Right, it's Matthew. Plus, this story pits women against other women, which is an old favorite move of the patriarchy. And because of all of this, all of these problems, Professor Lauren Winner, a writer, teacher, she refuses to engage the story on its own terms. She rejects it and calls it the parable of the catty, hard-hearted virgins. She asks, why can't the women with the extra oil just share? Why? Uh, why can't they at least share their lamps, if not the oil itself? And, and she lands her essay about it by praying that we might all share our oil, that we might all give and give and give away our oil, even if it leaves everyone without enough light. Lauren Winner, as you may sense, is a white woman. Other people, many white women, have quoted her article and mm, 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 it. They compare the women with enough oil to mean girls, to popular girls. They're the haves, hoarding resources and refusing to share. But here's the thing about the oil those wise young women brought with them. It wasn't extra. It was the correct amount. It was what they needed. It was what they thought about and knew they needed and prepared ahead of time to have on hand. The women, bridesmaids, girls, virgins, whatever, the ones with enough oil, they're not petty, popular, mean girls hoarding all the good stuff. They didn't take an extra step. They didn't bring extra oil. They understood what was needed and they did it. The ones with enough oil are the ones who know what it's, what's at stake. They're the wise ones. And whether they know from experience or have learned the hard way, they have come by this knowledge of how much oil is needed. And on a day when we here at church and the country is focusing on race as a white woman, I am not inclined to suggest that people who know what's at stake should take time and energy to school those of us who don't yet know. 
It's been a bigger story recently, so maybe you know that the maternal mortality rate has gone up in this country over the last 20 or so years. Like more women die in childbirth here than used to. Pregnant people here die three times more often than in Canada. Pregnant people die here five times more often than in the UK. Over the same 20 years, pregnancy-related deaths around the world have gone down significantly, like everywhere else, by roughly a third. Birth is getting safer other places and more dangerous here. They die 2.5 times as often as they did 20 years ago. The stakes are high, and for some reason, I assume the patriarchy, people only very recently have started paying attention to this. In a 2014 report, the Center for Disease Control reported that on top of this, considerable racial disparities in pregnancy-related mortality exist. Considerable racial disparities. That now outdated 2014 document reported that for every 12 white women who die of pregnancy-related causes, 40 black women do. The update from 2020 has white women at 12.7 deaths per 100,000 and black women at 43 and a half. I'm the jackass. That, that's the end of the story. I'm the jackass. The woman telling the story about the Navajo shamans goes back to her undergraduate institution and she meets with her advisor and she shares plans to continue the work and her advisor, another white woman, says, be very, very, very respectful. And she wants to tell her advisor how much more complicated it is than that. Like how many things she had assumed before her trip. Like she didn't think that shamans were either homophobic or that they ate at IHOP, you know? She wanted to tell her uh, advisor that the guy she was gonna study with wasn't some like wise, old, wizened Indian. He's young, he's on Facebook like all the time, like potentially kind of like catfishing women, but she wanted to tell her what a beautiful time she'd had with studying and, and how some of the shamans were sexist. And, and then she said, and I've got to tell you that even in a sermon series called Say Anything, I'm not using the actual language that she used. Like, it's just not our brand, you know what I mean? Like, for me to just, like, swear here on the lawn in a sermon. But you can imagine other language if you want. Anyway. The storyteller said, I wanted to tell my advisor that this dude I was supposed to approach with so much reverence was really kind of a jackass. That's not the end of the story, I told her. It's not wrong, factually, in any way, as far as I could tell Albert, that was the shaman's name. Albert did sound like kind of a jackass. But that is the end of a different story. My friend never heard the end of the story. My loudmouth activist pastor friend, she got irritated and walked out of the room and sometime later after that, she, a black woman, had her third child and she died of pregnancy-related causes. Did you bring enough oil? Hey, don't forget that extra flask of oil. You're gonna need a lot of oil. What if we have to wait? There are people who already know what's at stake. And that does create division. The people who know already are loading up on oil, loading up on what it takes to wait through a long night. 
The people who know have learned through long experience that they can't show up and expect that others will look out for them, that others will have their back. They have learned that if anything, in order to be regarded at all, they have to do better, do more, way more. The people who already know don't need the story that Jesus tells. They have lived it. They have been told again and again that the party is not for them. That, oh, um, even the oil they brought, it's not the correct oil. They have been told, for example, in the June 19th, 1865 General Order Number 3, that they have absolute rights of personal rights and rights of property, and those people know it is a lie. It's the people who don't know who are caught unaware, surprised, sometimes struck with grief, but also panic that now they're gonna miss out now that this thing is happening. And that does not mean it's the job of the ones who know to carry the ones who do not. The division and separation in this story are important and real and, and valid. It's not Jesus being mean. Not for me, not today. Not in this reading, not in this country. There's a time and a place for unity. There's a sermon to be preached about sharing, about giving no matter what, and this is not that sermon. Jesus didn't say that the kingdom of heaven is just the party inside. He starts the story by saying, the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Not getting into heaven will be like this. The kingdom of heaven, God's promised, always arriving change is all of it. The waiting, the anticipation, its preparation for some, its lack of preparation, its women resting together after their labor, women resting in the dark. The anthropology student storyteller, she changed the end of her story. She did call the shaman kind of a jackass. But then she added the real ending. More than anything else, she said, I wanted to tell my advisor that I'm the jackass for expecting people to be anything other than people. My friend, the loudmouth pastor activist, Deirdre, she didn't need to hear the end of the story. She knows it. What, like a white woman found out she's racist? Dee knows. There's a problem with the story, structurally. Lots and lots of people already know and are ready to take action. The stakes are high, are life and death. Life and death for people who need clean water and safe childbirth and decent schools, freedom to walk down the street unquestioned, unfrisked, unarrested, unkilled, freedom to be home alone, unmurdered by an officer, freedom to sleep in bed with a partner and to wake up in the morning. There's a problem with the story, among other reasons, structurally. Like, there's pretty much nothing that enrages me more than the fact that the police department can kill especially black men with impunity. But if there's an action at the mayor's office at 7 a.m., I just can't make it. It's too early. It's too far downtown. I'm the jackass. Not because I don't go almost every, t not because I don't go every single time, but because I almost never do, because I spend my energy on other things that matter much less to me. I'm the jackass because I don't share my energy, my oil, if you want to put a real fine point on it, for the important things. Last weekend, I was again with a community who still feels Deirdre's death acutely. I heard and wept through a sermon preached by her co-pastor, Ayana. Ayana is a woman who loved Deirdre 
the way I love Vince. And if you're new here, Vince and I aren't married. A lot of people get confused. We're just friends, but I do love him. And Deirdre loved Ayana. They started a church together. One of the things Ayana preached is that when she was down, having a crisis of faith, is that Deirdre would remind her who loves her. Deirdre would say, I love you, my husband loves you, our boys love you. And she said, imagine, Ayana, if you could tattoo all the names of those of us who love you on your arm. Remember who loves you. Deirdre's death is a disaster. I basically agree with everyone who thinks this is a hard story, even Professor Lauren Winner. And I sometimes have trouble finding the good news in this story, but it's something about the fact that God is not okay with considerable disparity. It's something about the fact that people who are just learning about it now, the ones who are unprepared, need to catch up. That we need to carry our own oil. That we need to give voice to the lie that we're all in this together. That we need to be loud about the truth that change has been a long time coming. The good news has something to do with the fact that it makes Jesus mad enough to be mean. That there's something good for all people to participate in, if only we'll keep awake. You know what? That's not the end of the story.